Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be back at uh, Grace Point again. Wayne Williams grew up a Chicago Cubs fan because that was his dad's favorite team. It was his childhood. They would listen to games on the radio as they would drive around town doing errands, occasionally get to visit games or watch them on television. Now, if you know anything about Major League Baseball, you know there was a lot of frustration being a Chicago Cubs fan because though they had been back to the World Series a few times, they hadn't won it in over a hundred years. But Wayne and his father made a pledge, as good fans do, when, not if, when the Cubbies made it back to the World Series, they would listen to the games together. And Wayne wouldn't have had it any other way. It was his childhood. He couldn't imagine experiencing the World Series without his dad right there. So when the Cubbies did make it back in 2016, it was actually a bit of a bittersweet moment for Wayne. It was sweet because the Cubs were back in the real big show finally, but a little bit bitter because it was going to be very difficult for Wayne to keep that promise. See, Wayne now lives in North Carolina. His dad was located in Indiana, but there's actually a far greater challenge. Wayne's dad had died some years before. He was actually buried in Indiana. But Wayne grew up with the belief, if you make a promise, you keep a promise. So he traveled from North Carolina to Indiana. I've got a picture up here put a camp chair on his father's grave, opened up his phone, and Wayne and his father listened to the Cubs win the World Series together. Now, I don't know if that story moves you as as much as it moves me, but the thought that a guy would take his promise that seriously, when there were a hundred reasons why it didn't matter anymore, his dad wasn't actually there, it was a sentimental promise made when he was a child, But when a guy takes a promise and says, I want to do what I promise, that moves me. And maybe one of the reasons it moves me is because God used the promise I had made to bring new life to my marriage. It was a promise that probably many of you made as well on the day you got married, if you do traditional vows. And this is that promise. I promise to love and to cherish until death do us part. Although I might have made that promise in the middle of a wedding ceremony, I don't know that I ever even thought about the word cherish for decades. I focused on marriage. It was always focusing on love, which is a good thing to focus on. It's an important part, but God brought it back to my mind some years ago. I said, Gary, you made this promise to your wife. I want you to learn what it means and begin to put it into practice. And I was astonished at the new level it raised in my marriage because it gave me something more to shoot for a couple of decades into my marriage. Love is essential. We could call it the substance of the relationship, the bread of the marriage. It's love. Love is sacrifice, service, commitment, loyalty, hanging in there. Those are all necessary things. But if love is the bread of the marriage, cherish is like the jam. It's what makes it tasty and delicious. Apart from love, apart from cherish, marriage can start to feel like a duty and a discipline more than a delight. And I believed in my own marriage and in the marriages in God's church, he wanted us to look at marriage not just as something quantitative. We made it to 30 years or to 40 years or 50 years. I believe he wants to raise the qualitative sense of our marriages from not just love, but to what we promise on what it means to love and cherish. Now, whenever I'm doing this in a church service, I know some of you are saying, great, I'm single. I have to listen to another sermon on marriage. How is this relevant to me? 
And in many ways, I think it's very relevant to you if you ever plan on getting married. What I want you to do is to raise the bar for what you expect. When you're infatuated, it's easy to excuse someone when your bar is just, are they going to stay in there with me and, and, and hang in there with me? And you don't realize the importance of what it means to find someone who cherishes you. I, I've met a number of young women who seem to make excuses for their boyfriends. Well, he loves me in his own way. It's just difficult for him to share how, or he's not that mean to me. In fact, I had one mother, she said she had a daughter in her 20s who was devastated when her boyfriend broke up with her. And she finally said, look, you've been mourning for a long time. We're just going to purge this guy. I want you to gather everything that he's ever given you. We're going to have this little bonfire and we're just going to be done with him. And her daughter said, that's a great thing. I want to be finally done. So she went, came back in about 30 seconds. She had a synthetic scarf and a cheap candle. (laughs) And she goes, Wait a minute, I'm like, everything he got you for your birthday, for Valentine's Day, for Christmas, all of the presents over the course of your day. He goes, yeah, this is it. Now, why are we mourning this guy? See, when, when you raise the bar to you want to be cherished in marriage, jerks look more like jerks, all right? Because there's a different thing that they have to look up to. And so I would just say to men and women alike, if you want to be cherished in marriage, marry someone who knows what it means to cherish. But that begs the question, if you're already married, what does it mean to cherish? To sort of give that picture, what I want to do is I want to juxtapose passages from 1 Corinthians 13, the most famous passages in the Bible on what it means to love, and compare that to passages from the Song of Songs that talks about the notion of cherishing. You'll see that they're related and it's important. They complement each other. They don't contradict each other. But cherish just adds a new element. It just has a slight turn that creates an entirely different kind of relationship. So let's do that. We'll begin with 1 Corinthians 13, 4. When Paul tells us that love is about being gracious and altruistic. Love is patient. Love is kind. But cherish is about being enthusiastic and enthralled. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice? Love tends to be quiet and understated. Love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. But cherish does boast. It boasts boldly and loudly. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. Love thinks about others with selflessness. Love isn't proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. But cherish thinks about its beloved with praise. Your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Love doesn't want the worst for someone. Love does not delight in evil. But cherish celebrates the best in someone. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Love puts up with a lot. Love always hopes, always perseveres, but cherish enjoys a lot. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. Love is about commitment. Love endures all things. Love never fails. But cherish, cherish is about delight and passion. Your name is like perfume poured out. 
I found the difference is that love focuses me on my obligations. I'm supposed to hang in there. I'm supposed to serve. I'm supposed to sacrifice. And those are great things. I'm not talking them down at all. Cherish focuses me on the beauty and excellence of my spouse. So I do a lot of the same things, but out of an entirely different motivation. I've trained myself to think about my spouse, to treat my spouse in a way that's not just, I made a promise to you 35 years ago, but celebrating the wonder of who I believe that she is. It just creates a new commitment. I got to experience this in a positive way when I had the flu a few years back. I was actually at a church. They had planned this a year in advance. It was a, it was a huge church and I just was not feeling well. I don't get sick very often at all, but I had the flu. I was literally laying down between sessions trying to regather my strength. And that night we were in the hotel room and you know how when you've had a fever and then it breaks and then you've got the chills and that's exactly what I was experiencing. So I'm there in, in, in the bed and, and Lisa starts to put her arms around me. I said, honey, watch out. This is terrible. You don't want to catch this. And she said, well, aren't you cold? I said, yeah. She goes, I got to get you warm. Now that might gross out some of you younger ones, but let me ask you, husbands, what will a wife do for a man that she knows cherishes her? In a world where women are often taken for granted at a certain age, women feel like they become invisible when kids might even resent them rather than appreciate them. But they come home to a man that they know, this man cherishes me in a world that either takes me for granted or doesn't even see me. What will a wife do for a man who cherishes her? In my experience, whatever she has to do for his welfare. And wives, what do you think a man will do for a wife that he knows cherishes him in a competitive world where we often don't come out on the top where a younger flashier more brilliant guy might take our place where we're not quite put up in the place where we would like to be but we come home and here's a woman who cherishes us we don't have to compete we don't have to win her affection more she just cherishes us what what will we do we'll do whatever it takes for her welfare and so in one sense while it's a great gift to give to your spouse You receive so much in return when you learn to do this. I know a pastor of a church where he was with seven men in his church. These were the leaders. A lot of the people looked up to these men. They respected them. Frankly, they respected their marriages. But the pastor wanted to find out what's really going on. So we're on this trip and he says to all seven guys, how many of your wives love you? And all seven hands went up. They said, how many of your wives like you? All seven hands went down. Well, as every man felt loved, not one felt cherished. They all said, I married a good woman. She loves the Lord. She's not going to leave me, but, but at best she tolerates me. That creates an entirely different dimension in marriage. And that's why we want to approach the whole notion of cherishing because that's, I believe, where our marriages are more likely to go than not if we're not consciously pursuing cherish. See, I don't think cherish is extra credit. If I really want a great marriage, I'm, I'm going to do that. I think the verse is rather true. If we don't cherish, the default position tends to be contempt. And why is that? We don't live in a neutral world. 
We live in a world that is hostile to our relationships and hostile to our marriages because it's a fallen world and we have fallen people and our marriages are regularly attacked. Our hearts are broken by our kids, by our others, by the loss of others. We have our own sin to deal with, our spouse's sin. We have things like depression and we have disappointment and financial issues. All of these things happen. And so if we're not pursuing cherish, slowly our affection is just going to be pulled back further and further. Even when you have all-star moments. I think of a great weekend in my wife's and my marriage. We were going up to Philadelphia to visit my youngest daughter. We'd recently become empty nesters and we were looking forward to it because when you're an empty nester, you're always thinking, great, we're going to get to be with one of our kids. And this happened to be our youngest daughter, Kelsey, who's always fun to be with. She's a classic last-born extrovert. In fact, when she was growing up, there was literally a family that borrowed her for their vacations. She was sort of their social director. She's that kind of fun. And I remember because this family got really angry with us one year because we scheduled our vacation the same year that they did. And they said, oh, this is going to be the worst vacation ever. You know, they're just a family of introverts and we're just going to sit and read books and wonder what would Kelsey say we should be doing. So we knew it would be a fun weekend and it was to be with Kelsey, but it's a meaningful weekend because you're with a family member when you're alone. And it was actually a romantic weekend as well. When you're empty nesters, you can be physically intimate at any time, but there's just something different about hotel sex. I don't know why I highly recommend it. It's, it's just a different experience. And, and, and so this weekend, our marriage was flying on all cylinders. It was a meaningful time. It was a fun time. It was a romantic time. And then we had a huge challenge Monday morning because we had booked the earliest flight out of Philly to get back to Houston. I had a full day of work ahead and Lisa agreed to that. And it's not a sacrifice for me to wake up early. I, I, I wake up abnormally early. Usually when I wake up, the first number is a four. That, that's definitely not my wife. She likes to sleep in, but she agreed to do this. So I'd been up for a while and we had a plane to catch. I really wanted to catch that plane and I can get a little bit anxious. And I know this can be obnoxious to live with. I mentioned last night, I'm not clinically OCD, but I live in the neighborhood right next door to it, right? So if I'm going to the airport, I like to leave on time because I believe in boundaries, right? I believe if you've got to catch a plane, you leave enough time so that if every light is red, you get a flat tire, they close one of the roads that normally goes in the airport and the plane leaves early, you're still on time, right? You've, you've left boundaries, you're there. I married a woman, however, who doesn't believe in boundaries. She believes in divine intervention, right? As long as God knows you intended to leave on time and that was your purpose and you tried really hard, he'll make every light green. He'll erase some of the miles. The plane will be held at the gate because God knows your good intentions. And so I I didn't want to be the obnoxious Gary because I didn't want to lose that wonderful weekend we had. I wanted to carry it from Philadelphia back to Houston. So I was trying not to be too picky, but I thought I I should at least raise the issue. And I said to Lisa, now, do you you think I could go ahead and and call a taxi? She said, oh, taxi's out front. I was like, wow, who is this I'm married? I I, I was shocked because usually she's not that organized first thing in the morning. But I thought, man, she must have just had a, a different kind of day. So I just chilled. Sat in a chair, did some email for five minutes, and she zips up her suitcase, says, all right, we can go. Did you call the taxi? I said, no. You said the taxis are out front. She said, no, I didn't. I said, call the front desk, see if there are taxis out front. If they're not, have them order one. 
Now, between you, me, and God, who I believe is very much present here this morning, I heard four syllables. Taxis out front. I'm a morning person. She's not. I'd had my Starbucks caffeine that morning. Lise hadn't. I believe in a court of law, I would win my case, all right? But this wasn't about winning a case. I wanted to bring the good feelings from Philadelphia back to Houston. I didn't want to blow it because we'd had such a great weekend and now life was fitting itself in. We're having this little deal. And and here's how we kind of deal with some of these disagreements. It might sound silly to you, but actually sometimes it really works. We just put it in the third person. And so we're walking toward the elevator and I say to Lisa, you know, hon, I I don't know what it's like in your marriage, but in my marriage, one of the things that makes it difficult is I have a wife, if, if she has to wake up earlier than normal and hasn't had her caffeine, she'll just speak four syllables and I'm supposed to get an encyclopedia of information out of there and I really want to hear her, but I don't know how to decipher four syllables and fill in all the details. And Lisa says, yeah, that that sounds like it would be difficult. But, you know, it's not as difficult as what I have in my marriage. (laughs) I said, really? She goes, yeah, in my marriage, I have a husband who doesn't listen to me very carefully, but he thinks he does. So I give him very clear instructions and he doesn't get it. And then, of course, it's my fault that he didn't hear me. I said, yeah, I guess that would be more difficult than the marriage I'm in. Which, guys, I'm just going to tell you, that's where it always goes anyway. If you, if you try that, that's where it ends up. But if I were to ask you what makes your marriage difficult, if you're married, nobody would have to say, give me five minutes to think of something. I, I'm not sure that I could point to one thing. You would know at the tip of your tongue. Some of you are hoping I'll take time out of the sermon to call on you. And you could tell all of us what's difficult about being married to the person next to you. You know immediately and you'd like us all to know. How do I know that? Because no marriage is completely easy in its own way. Because it's not an easy world to live in. Even if you have a great relationship, difficult things will happen to your relationship that begin to pull us apart. And so if we're not pursuing cherish, what happens is contempt begins to seep in drip by drip, not not automatically. It's just a little bit over time, the erosion of our affection for each other. You don't notice it in a week. You don't notice it in a month. You don't notice a year. You might not even notice it in a decade, but if marital affection slowly erodes, Great damage is done. You think it's sudden, but it's not. It's like the picture of what we see here. What happened here was erosion. That cliff didn't just drop into the sea in, a, in one storm. It was a little bit by bit by bit. Slowly the erosion took place until there was a big collapse. And that to me is the picture of so many marriages that don't make it. I think of a couple, Lisa and I know, that We were there on the day they got married. They were delighted in each other. They adored each other. 15 years later, we're at this big dinner at a restaurant. There are probably 12 couples around the table. Lisa and I are at the end with this one couple. And this guy, he's he's very much an introvert. He doesn't really participate much. And I was just trying to be polite and bring him into the conversation. So when something came up, I thought he might have an opinion. And I said to him, hey, don't chefs think such and such? Before he could answer, his wife pipes in, he's not a chef, he's a cook. And the husband, honey, he can call me a chef. No, he can't. Chefs prepare things, you just heat things up. And I mean, 
table got silent. And here's what he does. It's, it's even worse. He's the head guy at a nursing home to provide three meals a day to 200 residents. It's not easy in this day and age. Sometimes administrators come in and they cut the budget. So yeah, some meals do get heated up. He tries his best. But the contempt that came out of her voice just surprised me because I thought, just as an objective person, I mean, I don't have a side to pick. Why couldn't she see this as a wonderful work, especially as a Christian? James 1.27 tells us religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. Here's a demographic that often gets ignored. He provides some of these widows the, the best moment of their day, nutritious meals that are hopefully awful, also, also tasty. And she looked at his job with contempt. I thought instead it could be an adventure. Maybe she could pray for him as he goes out the door. Father, just as you use your son to feed a whole thousands with a few loaves and fishes, maybe you can gift my husband to do an amazing work for these nursing home residents that often get ignored and forgotten. See, it didn't make any sense that she was afraid he'd be given more respect because contempt colors the way we look at our spouse. It was the same man she married, but year after year after year, contempt starts to seep in. And so you say something to to a crowd of objective observers, just seems mean and unwarranted. And that's because, again, I want to say that we don't live on a level. Here's an example. This is a question I want to ask you with that we'll be exploring more tonight. What if there is no status quo in marriage? What if you're saying, well, my marriage is okay. I don't want to come to another marriage conference. I mean, I'm not going to say it's an A+, but probably a B+. We have moments of A-. We might slip into a B, but it's okay. All I'm saying is what makes you think it's going to stay there for another five years? In a world that is hostile to your relationship, if you're not trying to lift it up, I don't think it's a slant. I don't think it just stays there. If we look at the next slide, here's what I think it's more like. Life is a slant. We're either crawling up toward cherishing each other or racing toward contempt. It's not one or the other. Now, here's the good news. And I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe this from the bottom of my heart. Cherishing is something we can choose to do. It it was a word that was hiding in plain sight when God gave it to me. I mean, I just said, it it, it seems so obvious. And what I love about it, it's the opposite of infatuation. We live in a culture infatuated with infatuation as if that's the high point of the relationship. But infatuation hits it. We don't choose it. It just hits us. And then when it goes, as science says it must within 12 to 18 months, we can't get it back. Cherishing is the opposite. It's about choosing a certain mindset and and unleashing actions that begin to develop a cherishing marriage. Cherishing can be built. It goes up and up and up, even as infatuation slides down. And we'll talk a lot about those practical things tonight. But this morning, with the limited time we have left, I just want to put the first step of cherishing. And in keeping with really Christian transformation, it begins with how we think about our spouse. Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know this. So if I want to start to cherish my spouse, I have to think about my spouse differently. And what's the image to do that? I believe cherishing begins when we go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. 
there's a brief period of time when Eve was literally the only woman in the world. Think about this. There was no one Adam could compare her to. He couldn't say, well, she might be athletic, but she doesn't have the sense of humor of this one, or she's not as intelligent as that one, or as curvy as that one. Adam couldn't compare her for all he knew. This is what a woman is, and this is even more difficult. This is what a woman is supposed to be. He didn't know a woman could be any other way. In the same way, Adam was literally the only man in the world. Eve couldn't compare him to other husbands. There were no other husbands to compare him to. So they could be perfectly content and happy because they could receive each other as they were rather than resent them for what they're not. You see, cherishing has to be built out of the foundation of a commitment to contentment. Because it's comparison that's the doorway to contempt. Because what we often do is we take our spouse's greatest weaknesses and compare them to another spouse's strengths. And then our spouse comes out wanting and we stop cherishing them because we're not thinking about what they are. We're ruining what they're not. There's a great um, classical writer who talks about how God is the only perfect being. And so whenever he creates, everybody has something they lack. A couple examples he used that I thought were fun is like peacocks and blackbirds. If you want a beautiful bird, I, don't, I think everybody would say the peacock's the most beautiful bird in the world. But have you ever heard a peacock's voice? It's like fingernails on a blackbird. It's painful. It's terrible. Now, a blackbird is nothing to look at, but then it sings and you're like, that sounds angelic. It's incredible. You don't have a bird that has both. It's, it's one or the other. And he says the same thing is with, with trees. You have fruit trees. If you need to eat, fruit trees are great. They give you delicious fruit, but you can't build a house with a fruit tree. You have to go to the forest and you get lumber trees and then you can build a house, but you can't eat off a lumber tree because nothing is complete. Only God is complete. So when we get married, we realize our spouse can't be everything. And if we fall in love and decide to marry a peacock, we're happy with peacocks. We don't complain if they're not blackbirds. If you fall in love with a fruit tree, you don't wish that your spouse was a lumber tree. You say, no, I'm particularly in to lumber trees or fruit trees, whatever I said. <laughs> and, and, and that's how I'm going to be content. Guys, here's the gift we give our wives when we cherish. It comes up several times in the book, Cherish. It, I just, it, it's my vision for how my wife would see herself through my eyes. Song of Songs 6-9. My dove, my perfect one is the only one. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. And the brilliance of this verse, looking at my wife as Eve, the only woman in the world where I don't even see other women in competition anymore, is it removes her from thinking she has to compete with the sum of her parts against every other woman. I I didn't realize as a young husband how much women compare themselves to other women. I mean, they've they got a hundred parts they have to compare. Their, their hair, their, their um, eyelids. I, I just didn't know that was a thing. Their skin. Oh, she's got such great skin. Is that a thing? I mean, you, you're worried about, about your, but, but it is. And, and so what you say is when she becomes my Eve, it's not that she's the sum of her parts. It's who she is. She's the only one to me. I mean, let's say that there was a woman who was demonstrably considered the most beautiful woman in the world. 
And let's say she's also the most intelligent. She destroys the Mensa test. And she's the godliest. She prays. She's memorized half the Bible. And she's relationally gifted. And let's say that woman, for some even more crazy reason, if it's even more impossible, that she's into 59-year-old bald men. All right? Let's just, not likely, but let's just put it out there. She would still have one fatal flaw for me. She's not Lisa. And Lisa is my Eve, my dove, my perfect one, the only one. Lisa's the perfect combination who defines for me what a woman is supposed to be. And so I have to put comparison to death. Otherwise, we're like that kid with the loose tooth that hurts. And you keep pushing it with your tongue. And yeah, it still hurts. And yeah, yeah, it still hurts. And you think, why? Does it ever make us feel any better? No, it doesn't. But even better, when we begin to cherish our spouse, it makes the best things in life even better and the worst things in life easier to endure. I come from Seattle, even though I now live in Houston, so I've always been a Seahawks fan. And uh, when Seahawks finally won the Super Bowl, there was an amazing moment when they're interviewing Pete Carroll about what he remembers most. And you might think a coach who's finally won the Super Bowl, he's thinking, man, this is the pinnacle. I want to see the other coaches. We did it. We worked all season. He might want to go to his favorite players. I told you could do it. But when he won the Super Bowl and everybody wanted his attention, it was a packed stadium. There's only one person he wanted to see. Listen to this testimony. Getting up on the podium and looking through the crowd and trying to find Glenna, and uh, and when I, you know, when I caught that look, you know, and that smile, it was really, that was it. That was the whole moment. And uh, the confetti's flying, you know, and the family's right. I couldn't, I didn't see. She was like the only one in the stadium. I'm about ready. <laughs> oh, that's such a joy to see. It's such a joy to see your face. I think that proves that even the highest vocational accomplishment can't compare with what a cherishing marriage gives to us. That's what God created us for. So I want to just have the same expectation for myself that others have about what marriage means. I think by the time I was doing a sacred marriage conference, it was a, a, a pretty large church like this, but they came running in. I was in this green room. They said, Gary, we forgot to do a mic check. We can't do it and we can't open up the sanctuary doors until you do it. Can you hurry up? So I'm rushing and my wife is busy setting up the book table. And if you ever meet my wife, we, we just don't look like we belong together. Um, especially since I lost my hair. She just looks a lot younger and healthier and, and livelier than me. In fact, she's been told one time at the book table, you must be so proud of your daddy. He said, I am, but he didn't write these books. And so that's just kind of defend this reaction that this middle-aged woman had. So I'm going out. I've got to go to the green room or the sanctuary, but Lisa's setting up the book table. I want to at least acknowledge her. I don't have time to stop. So I just kind of smile at her and pat her on the rear end, which she doesn't mind. I wouldn't do it if she did. And she smiled back at me. Well, this woman saw this and she comes marching up to my wife just angry. Was that Gary Thomas? And Lisa's kind of, yeah, it, it is. She got even, are you his wife? And, and my wife just felt like I was being insulted. If you knew my wife, she would never respond like this, but it just sort of came out. No, he was with his wife last weekend. This weekend, it's my turn. <laughs> I said, honey, you can't say that. 
And she goes, but Gary, in a million years, that's not you. You, I go, but she doesn't know that. Read the papers. It happens all the time. People doing what I do. But Lisa just thought she was the, now she did clear it up. I just want you to know there, hopefully not that rumor out there. But this woman had this view that I should only treat my wife that way. And I agree. And I want to do that mentally because my wife knows when she fills my eyes. When my heart leaps because I see her, when her waking up is the best part of my day. I can't fake that. And my vision for writing this book and being here this weekend is to actually help make younger couples jealous of older couples. Because it's usually the reverse. When they're infatuated, they think nobody has ever loved the way that they love. And I don't want to make them feel jealous to make them feel smaller. It's to give them hope. It's because I know I've read the science. Infatuation has a shelf life of 12 to 18 months. It's going to drop off. And I want them to know there's something even better than infatuation out there. They can choose to cherish once infatuation fades. I know that sounds like a big challenge. But if it's been done once, it can be done again. I know a case where it was done. It's told by a good friend of ours, uh, Dr. Greg Bledsoe. A lot of you know him when I'm in this state because he's your surgeon general. Um, Lisa always refers to him as our smartest friend. He's also a very godly man. He's written some great things. I hope he gets published someday. But he's telling me about when he was in medical training and he was going around with the resident physician. They walk into a room of an elderly couple in their 80s. The woman had a neuromuscular disease, so she couldn't really talk. She'd just sit there and moan. She couldn't really control all of her hands, so her head would just go over and her mouth would drop open and some drool would come out. And Greg watched this man just lovingly wipe the drool off his wife's cheek as if nothing was happening. But he he looked at this and he he said, Gary, I have to admit, I, I walked in and I felt sorry for this guy in his 80s having to deal with all of this. And then Greg looked at the chart and he saw where the husband's address was and the wife's address. They were the same. He didn't pick her up in a nursing home on their way home. He was her primary caregiver. And as a physician in training, Greg knew what that would require. And he said, I have to admit, I felt sorry for him at this stage in his life. And I prayed, dear God, please, not me ever. When I choose someone to marry, I don't want to end up in that situation. The resident surgeon got a page. He had to leave the room. It left Greg alone with this man and his wife. And it was a little awkward because Greg didn't have anything medically to offer. He wasn't far enough along in his training. But even more, the man had seen the way that Greg looked at him with pity. And at the wife with less than complete approval. And he felt a great injustice had been done. And so he started bragging to Greg about his wife. She's one of the greatest fishermen he had ever met, how she could catch him like no one else, uh, just her strengths. I'm going to let Greg tell you what, what happened next. Here's what he said. For the next 10 minutes, I was transfixed as this man who moments before I had pitied regaled me with story after story of his life together with his wife. It was incredible. What was even more incredible, however, was the change that occurred in me. Watching this elderly man caress his wife's hand, kiss her cheek, wipe away her drool, and joyfully recount their lives together provoked a powerful transformation of perspective within me. Gone was any semblance of pity. Instead, 
In its place was envy. Greg felt sorry for him. And now he said, I envy him. I wish someday I could have a relationship like that. Because he realized when the man was loving his wife and and, and wiping the drool off her cheek, he was back to being a 20-something kid who was excited to see a little ice cream on his date's cheek so he could get a little skin-to-skin contact. And he could saw the way that this wife filled up the man's eyes that if a Victoria's Secret model with a degree in quantum physics walked by, that man's not turning because his Eve, the only woman in the world, was right in front of him. Now notice, when Greg saw him just loving his wife, sacrificing, serving, being committed, he felt sorry for him. It was only when he saw the man cherish his wife that he felt envy. And he realized there's something to this marriage business I've never discovered before. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit more about the practical nature of the actions and the attitudes that help foster this. This morning, the charge is just this. There can be more. I've seen marriages turned around. Love is good. It's better than good. It's great. But love and cherish is even better. Let's raise the bar and keep our promise to love and to cherish till death do us part. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you not only ask us to achieve something that will bring great blessing to ourselves and to our spouses, but something that you do for us, that you, the perfect God, cherish the imperfect us, and you can empower us to cherish our imperfect spouse. We thank you for this call. And Lord, I just pray we'd have renewed hope that we don't face this battle alone, but we're fighting it with you. In Jesus' name, amen.